Well, good morning, church. Uh, it, has, it has been longer for me than I think it has been for you since I've stood up here and preached. I have been ill, and it felt like those days just dragged on, sickest as I've been in a long time. And uh, then last week, I wasn't with you because we went up to Grace Covenant Church up in Gilbert, which is where my family and I were worshiping last week. Even as I was getting ready this morning, I was going, goodness, was that just last week? It felt like it was weeks ago. So it is such a privilege to be back in the pulpit with you this morning as we continue our series in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I was reminded this past week of a quote from Steve Lawson who said, there are only two types of preachers. There are those who preach the Bible and there are those who need to resign. And as I have no intention of resigning, I suppose I will preach from God's word today. So... Open your Bible, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, as we pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Our theme this morning, the title of the sermon is, To Train Yourself for Godliness, as you see on the overhead here. In honor of the word of the king, would you please stand? I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writing to his servant Timothy, whom he has sent to the church in Ephesus, hear the word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, for it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy, When the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, what, what a comfort it is to be with the body of Christ this morning. And I pray that everyone who is here feels this place as a sense of safety. There is no undue judgment that is coming against anyone else, but we are all sinners who have come to a place of wanting to worship the Savior, the one who has given himself for us by his death on the cross, By faith in his life and his death and his resurrection, we are forgiven our sins and we are given everlasting life. Now this passage that we read from this morning, this is directing us in those things 
that come after that statement of faith that we, that we have pledged ourselves to in Christ. We believe, and so now how should we live? And so may we consider those things as we heed this instruction to train yourself for godliness. There are many things that we can do in our bodies that are good and are beneficial, that are healthy for us, maybe wise things to do to prolong our days. Maybe even live happier lives instead of living in misery if we make good and wise choices for our bodies. But none of those things get us closer to the kingdom. It is only Jesus Christ that draws us in, that brings us to you, that guarantees our everlasting life with you is secure. Bless our learning this morning as we come to your text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think we all understand the concept of the kind of rigorous training that an athlete needs to do to prepare himself for a competition. This is an Olympic year. The Summer Olympics will be held in Paris, France from the end of July to the middle of August. The greatest athletes from all over the world will be competing for the Olympic gold. And no one gets into the Olympic Games because they just showed up. They have been preparing for this, for most of them, almost their entire lives. They have already been competing at elite levels in events such as track, field, swimming, diving, gymnastics, wrestling, martial arts, weightlifting, cycling, basketball, volleyball, tennis, baseball and softball, the triathlon and the decathlon, even badminton, ping pong, squash, and the one that for the life of me I cannot understand, synchronized swimming. I didn't realize this until just last night, but in 2028, when the Summer Olympics are going to be in Los Angeles, flag football will officially be an Olympic sport. Dusty got up and left. I was going to look at Dusty and say, you have four years to come up with a good flag football team. Dusty, wherever you are, I hope you heard that. As the old sayings go, practice makes perfect no pain, no gain. There's Dusty. Give it all you got. Leave it all out on the field. Second place is the first loser. Even the Apostle Paul understood this concept of training to win the prize. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore, I run in such a way, Paul says, as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here to Timothy, Paul puts it this way. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
This is an imperative heavy section that we're looking at this morning. Just about every sentence is an instruction of some kind. And we'll consider today not just how these things apply to Timothy, whom Paul is saying them to, but even how the Holy Spirit directs us to be trained in godliness. As I've joked about practice makes perfect, the word practice does come up in this section. You may have noticed that. Synonymous also with training. The expression, these things, comes up three times, and it's really what divides these three portions. So we'll consider how these instructions fall into the three following categories. So number one, Paul says to know these things. That's verses 6 through 10. Number two, he says to teach these things, verses 9 through 12. And then lastly, number three, he says practice these things. We see that in verses 13 to 16. Listen also for words such as good, godliness, value, life, and teaching. We will spend most of our time this morning as we consider this in verses 7 and 8, for this is the heart of the passage. Train yourself for godliness. First of all, we come to verses 6 through 10, that we may know these things. Look again at verse 6. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the good words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, what are the things that Paul says Timothy should put before the brothers? He's talking about the instruction that he just gave in the previous verses, not the instructions he's about to give in verses 7 through 16. How do we know this? Because verse 7 actually begins with the word but or de in the Greek, but for whatever reason that word does not appear in the English Standard Version. But it is in the Legacy. It's in the New American Standard. It's even in the King James, so I don't know why the ESV translators didn't include it but introduces a thought that contrasts with something that has already been said. So when Paul says, put these things before the brothers, he's talking about instructions that he's already given. The nearest antecedent, of course, would be the instructions that we just read in verses 1 through 5, where Paul warned about the doctrines of demons who forbid what God has made to be received with thanksgiving. But I happen to believe that this goes back even further. This goes back even to chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul says that he is writing, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. If you still have chapter 3 open in front of you, notice that in verse 16 he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And what do we have in this section today? Train yourself for godliness. So when Paul says to put these things before the brethren, meaning the whole church body, he's talking about those main confessions of the gospel of Jesus Christ that undergird the church of the living God. Adherence to the truth also means avoiding lies and deceptions of the enemies of the church that Paul had said at the start of the chapter. In this way, Timothy and his congregation will be 
trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine or right teaching, the right teaching that he has followed, the teaching that he heard Paul preach, that Timothy is now preaching at the church in Ephesus. He has been following it. Paul encourages him to remain diligent in it. And my friends, may that be said of us and this church. Providence began solidly on a confession of the gospel of Christ. We have a confession of faith that is a summary of the sound words that we know that the scripture teaches. We know these things. May we be found diligent to also teach these things and practice these things. And all of this is in light of the fact that we believe the gospel of Christ, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he is interceding for us at the right hand of God, that he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. And all who are in Christ will not perish under the righteous judgment of God, but we will live forever with him in glory. In light of the fact that we believe that, we follow this instruction to be trained for godliness. Now, it would be enough for me to stand up in front of you today and tell you, train yourself for godliness. And you would all have to sit there and nod your heads and go, yes, brother, we should. It's right there in the word of God. It says to do it, so we must do it. And that would be enough for you. But if that's all I were preaching, if that's all that Paul were saying, that would be nothing but law. I would just be telling you, go out and do this and you will be a good person. And we cannot keep the law, as the scripture tells us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law. We cannot in and of ourselves just be good people. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we have been clothed in his righteousness and now we are able to keep the law in a way that is honoring of God and grows us in godliness. We are able to train ourselves in godliness because we believe the mystery of godliness, which if you'll remember back when we were teaching, when we were learning on that in chapter three, I said, it's just another way of Paul saying the gospel. The mystery of godliness is the message of the gospel. We believe the message of the gospel and so therefore... By the righteousness of Christ that we wear, we've been clothed in. We are able to be trained in godliness. There's something here we're actually able to do and even achieve by the power of Christ that is within us. So this instruction does not exist in a vacuum. Paul is not simply saying, train yourself for godliness. It's in light, again, of the mystery of godliness, the gospel that we believe that we may be trained in godliness. Now, as I said, verse 7 is where we have the contrast. So verse 6 is an affirming statement to be devoted to good doctrine. Verse 7, pretend there's a but there at the beginning of the sentence. If you're reading one of those translations that has the but there, then you don't have to imagine too hard but have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So literally translated, this, this have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. That's the way it's translated in the ESV. If you were to take it literally from the Greek into English, this verse goes, but refuse godless myths fit only for old women. 
So we, the ESV translators took it just a little step further and gave you the understanding have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, and that's sufficient. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard uh, the phrase old wives' tales before. Have you ever heard that said? The origin of this epithet refers to illiterate women who would tell stories usually intended to scare children from doing undesirable things. An example might be, if you swallow your chewing gum, it takes seven years to digest it. That's not true, but that might be an example of an old wives' tale. Or, if you cross your eyes, it might get stuck that way. Okay, some of you have heard that one. When I was a kid, my mom told me to believe, uh, told me that when, uh, if I went swimming after eating, my guts would explode. Did anybody else have that? Yeah, the cramps. Yeah, right. You have to wait 15 minutes or something before you go swimming. Well, these these are examples of old wives' tales, and the reason that Paul uses this phrase, the point that he's trying to make, is not to be devoted to teachings that have no basis in God's word. And they're just simply meant to scare you from doing bad things. That is not how one grows up and matures in Christ. There's probably wisdom in, you know, wait a few minutes after you eat before you jump in the pool. But don't be devoted to those myths that don't come from God's word and have no eternal value to them. To be a godlier person, one must actually pursue godliness. You cannot merely abstain from certain things and therefore say, I'm godly. I used to think this way. I used to think that, you know, if, if I'm just not smoking or drinking, if I'm not going out and partying with my friends, if I don't play cards and gamble and things like that, if I don't do stuff like that, well, then I'm a godly person. There was one time when I was in college, I was caring for a couple's dog. Uh, it was uh, a couple had, who had been married for 25 years. For their 25th anniversary, they went on a cruise. And they asked me if I would come and let the dog out a couple of times a day while they were away on their cruise, and they would pay me for that. I was kind of a house sitter for them during that time. They even let me, you know, make my food there and sleep there if I wanted to for the time that they were gone. And I remember during that period of time, I was actually going through quite a crisis. I was thinking to myself, how do I know that I'm really saved? Is it because I abstain from these things? I don't smoke and drink. I don't play cards. I don't gamble. I don't, I don't do stuff like that. And, and so now maybe I must be a Christian. People would look at me and they would see my squeaky clean resume and they would think of me, Gabe is a good Christian guy. Well, there's one day where I was letting the dog out and I'm standing there on the back porch. This was between my classes and I'm, I'm kind of thinking about classes and I'm thinking about things that are going on and I'm just observing the dog wandering around in the yard and I think to myself, you know, that dog doesn't smoke or drink. That dog doesn't gamble and play cards with other dogs. And I know there are dogs that do because I've seen the paintings. Some of you don't get that joke. Look it up. You'll find it. Dogs smoking and drinking and gambling. Okay. And so I'm looking at the dog and I'm going, would that therefore then mean that this dog is qualified as godly? And I realized to myself, there's, there's more to it than this. There's more to it than just abstaining from doing bad things. That doesn't make a person godly. 
You don't merely abstain from certain things and then say, I'm a godly person. You're probably just being lazy. You're doing nothing is not being godly. One must actually strive to be godly. A person doesn't become an elite Olympic athlete just by abstaining from junk food. They have to get up. They have to go out. They have to train, work, strive. And so it is the same if you want to be like Jesus. So Paul says, don't have anything to do with these myths that are meant to scare you away from doing bad things. And those were the doctrines of demons that we had just read about in verses 1 through 3 in the chapter, right? Abstaining from foods, abstaining from certain things, and then you will be a godlier person. These false teachers scare you from eating certain foods, believing that if I eat this or that, then it's a sin. Well, that's an irreverent, silly myth. Have nothing to do with that. Rather, train yourself. Pursue something. Go after it. Practice. Build yourself up for the purpose of being godly. Now, what does it mean to be godly? We're using that word, but what does it mean? What is godliness? It is very simply being like God. The Greek word is eusebia, meaning piety, reverence, or orienting yourself towards God. Some will say that we shouldn't want to be like God because wasn't that what the serpent promised to Eve in the garden? If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And that was a lie, so we shouldn't want to try to be like God. On the contrary, Scripture says being like God is exactly what we're supposed to be like. The lie of the serpent was do this thing that God told you not to do and then you will become more like God. That's absurd. In reality, it put Adam and Eve and the rest of mankind further away from God. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In 1 Peter 1, 15-16, Peter says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy because I am holy. We must... Be like God. And of course, as I said earlier, we cannot achieve this apart from Christ. By faith in Jesus, he clothes us in his righteousness that we may be able to pursue godliness and be able to attain it. Now, you might say to me, Brother Gabe, we can't attain it until we reach heaven, right? Not until we're with our Lord in glory, and then and only then will we truly be godly. So if I won't be truly godly until that day, why should I be in pursuit of it now? Well, first of all, because Jesus told you to. That's the first reason. Yes, we won't be perfect until we reach perfection, but we must still want it and be after it because Jesus told us to be like him. Secondly, you should pursue it because you belong to Jesus. Consider what Paul says in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Because Christ has made me his own. Because Jesus left his throne in heaven. The son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived a perfect life and he died for me. God died for me. And rose again from the dead even for my behalf. Then I should desire to want to be like Jesus. As brother Allen read to us this morning from 1 John 2. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which Jesus walked. We must be in pursuit of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We must pursue Christ that we may obtain Christ. We must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. We must be holy as he is holy. And my friends, this is everything. Go back with me to verse 7, and let's continue to verse 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Recently, there were some squabbles among Christians online about bodily training. Many of them were using this verse to say that the Bible instructs us to work out, eat right, and be healthy. Now, there's certainly wisdom in those things. Too often, we ignore the fact that God's word does tell us not to be a glutton. Proverbs 26.15 says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Like a person becomes such a glutton, he sticks his hand in the bag of chips, and he's too lazy to even bring those chips back to his mouth again. That is a gluttonous person. But if you come to 1 Timothy 4.8, and you think that this passage has something to do with diet and exercise, you've missed the whole point of the verse. There are so many teachers out there that I've warned the body of Christ from going after because if you listen to their teaching, they never take you high enough. They might have sound practical advice, but you could ask an accountant or a financial planner for advice like that. It's like their teaching never takes people to the throne of grace. It's all bodily training. It's stuff like get out of debt or fix your marriage or have a positive outlook on life. Some of those things are good counsel, but how does it get you to Christ? Again, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Bodily training will not get you to heaven. The world's most impressive athletes are going to be playing in the Summer Olympic Games this year. 
or we'll be playing in the Super Bowl next week. We'll have uh, another Stanley Cup this year, most likely. There will be NBA championships. There will be another World Series. But not one of those champions who stand on a podium to celebrate their victory will get into heaven's gates for their athletic achievement. There is no eternal value in bodily training. The false teachers who are trying to scare you from bad things or keep you from eating certain foods or whatever, they are at best training your body, but not your soul. Abstaining from certain things will not gain Christ. Being in pursuit of Christ will gain Christ. And that benefits you in the present. It benefits you now, as well as for eternity. Bodily training may have some present value, sure. You can even, make a, you can even learn a, uh, earn a living that way. You might even become rich. If you do, I hope you're still attending this church. <laughs> and you help us out with gaining more space so we've got room for people to sit in here. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Recently at Family Devotions, I told my children... Their schoolwork was very important. It is important that you learn how to do math. And my kids went, uh. <laughs> you have to learn to read and understand the scientific method and history and all of that. But nothing, I said to them, is more important than knowing Jesus. No matter what happens for the rest of your life, I said, be sure you know Christ and get to the other side. We all will die. And Christ is the only solution to our death problem. I pray daily for my children that God would make himself known to them. And nothing is more important than that. My friends, the most fearsome thing that you will ever face in life is death. And the last time I checked, when I woke up this morning, this statistic was still the same for everybody. One out of one person dies. I have people online that contact me every once in a while and say that I'm wasting my time, that I'm pursuing a myth, that it's silly, and all this Christianity has been debunked a long time ago. I often quote to them from 1 Peter 1 where I says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You're going to die. This word is still going to be true. And I've said to some of those persons, listen, you find me somebody with all of the eyewitness evidence that has proven that he walked on water and fed 5,000 and raised the dead and he himself lived a sinless life and he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead and he promised that whoever believes in him will likewise have everlasting life. You show me a person, I'll follow them, but until then, I trust Jesus. And I'm saying that, of course, tongue-in-cheek, because there is no one else. There is only Christ. Godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In verse 9, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And again, this is in reference to what he just said. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is a value to us now of even more value than bodily training. 
The late Baptist theologian John Gill says this, Godliness is profitable unto all things, to the health of the body and to the welfare of the soul, to the things of this life and that which is to come. For God has promised to his spiritual worshipers, to them that fear him and walk uprightly, that their days shall be prolonged, that they shall want no good thing, nor will he withhold any from them that is for their good, that is proper and convenient for them. Unquote. Think of how beneficial it is to know that by faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you have everlasting life with God. What do you think knowing that does for your mental health? Hebrews 13, 6 says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In Romans 8, 31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Does that not give you, as we sing in the old hymn, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? My friends, I know this goes without saying for most of you, but your body will fail you. Some of you are already feeling that. As you get older, you'll notice it more. Young people, you feel invincible now. It doesn't take long. Even the most practiced athlete grows old, gets frail, and dies. You cannot put your hope in your own body. Put your hope in Christ. And oh, how rewarding that hope is for the present life and also for the life to come. At the close of this particular section, Paul says in verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. Now, be careful with this verse. This is one that universalists have used to say that God saves all people and therefore all are going to heaven. Well, that would be to neglect words from Paul elsewhere where he says quite the opposite, that not everybody is going to be saved. There are many that will be in hell and only those who have faith in Christ will live forever. It would, it would be to contradict the words of our Lord Christ himself. For Jesus said that the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. 19th century theologian Charles Ellicott says the following. These words that we read here in this particular verse, uh, in verse 10. These words have often been pressed into the service of that school of kindly but mistaken interpreters who ignore or explain away the plain doctrine of Holy Scripture which tells us there are those whose destruction from the presence of the Lord shall be everlasting, whose portion shall be the second death, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 and Revelation 21.8. These interpreters prefer to substitute in place of this terrible but repeated declaration their own perilous theories of universalism, unquote. 
Universalism, again, that idea that everybody's going to heaven. Nobody goes to hell. And as I've said about universalism, it's even worse than atheism. The atheist believes that there are no consequences for our actions, no reward for good, no punishment for bad. When you die, you die. But the universalist believes that there is an eternal reward for our actions, whether you do good or you do bad. You can be an evil tyrant like Nero, Mao, or Hitler, making life miserable for millions of people, and you will still inherit the kingdom of God, whether or not you believe in Christ. And that is an absolutely evil notion. Why would that keep anybody from doing evil, from pursuing good instead of doing the evil thing? To say that Jesus is the Savior of all people, as Paul is saying right here, is simply to say that there is one Savior for everyone in the world. There is not a Savior for North America, and then a Savior for South America, and then a different Savior for Europe, and then a whole other Savior for Asia, and then a different Savior for Australia saying, good eye, mate. There is one Savior for everyone, no matter where they are in the world. He is the Savior for all people. But he is especially the Savior for those who believe in him. He definitely saves them. We who know him are saved from the judgment of God that is coming against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. My friends, we know these things. We have immersed ourselves in them. And so, as Paul says again in 1 Timothy 4, 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather... Train yourself for godliness. For bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And if you are here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I pray that you would talk to either me or Alan or uh, Alan's over here or Chris or Josh. Uh, if you were among the youth that were with Josh in class today, grab a hold of any one of us and ask us what it means to be a Christian. How do I know that my sins are forgiven and I have everlasting life with God? And on the day of judgment, I will not hear God say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, I never knew you. But I will hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, for great is your reward. How can I have peace in the present life and know the reward of eternity in the life to come? The answer is in Jesus Christ. We come to this table every Sunday morning to partake in the Lord's body and in his blood, in his sacrifice. 
He was seated with his disciples on the night that he was arrested to go to the cross and be crucified for our sins. And with his disciples, he broke bread with them. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body for you. He gives them something tangible that they could hold, that they could even taste as a remembrance, as a memorial. Eat this in remembrance of me, he said. He passed a cup to them and said, in this cup, it represents the new covenant of my blood, which has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And saying to them, I won't drink of this cup with you again until I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And so we partake in those things every Sunday to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us so that we could be forgiven our sins and have everlasting life. If you are a baptized believer, then we welcome you to partake in these things with us. But if you've not yet been baptized, I would ask you to abstain. That you would come to us and you would ask, what must I do to make a confession that I am a, a follower of Christ and I may partake in these things together with the body of Christ as well? And we would love to have that conversation with you. Let's pray together and prepare our hearts to come to this table as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. We'll take a moment in silence, confess your sins before God if there's anything you need to confess, that you not partake in this table in any unworthy manner. And then at the close, I will pray and our elders will serve the meal. Let's pray.